3: Rock is filled with great duos, Sonny and Cher, Jack and Meg, maybe even the two of us. I'm Jim Deergottis from WBEZ and Columbia
4: College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. Jim and I have picked out our favorite duets of all time. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
3: Greg, the whole history of the music business is based on producing hits. Can you predict them? If you could, you would rule the universe. Well, what if science gave you a key to do that? Some new research out of Emory University is suggesting that teens have telltale brain responses when they are listening to hit songs as opposed to tunes that will not be huge commercial successes. The study was conducted by neuroeconomist Gregory Burns and neuroscientist Sarah Moore. As Greg said in one article I read, the punchline is that brain response is correlated with units sold. We wanted to hear more about this study and what it means for the music business. So welcome, Dr. Burns, to Sound Opinions. It's great to be here. So, Greg, before we get going, can you start by explaining to us
5: exactly what neuroeconomics is? Well, neuroeconomics is a pretty new field. And the basic idea is to use brain imaging technologies like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI to understand how the brain makes decisions.
3: Okay, that makes sense. And the economics part of it would come in, because obviously uh, part of this is going to be how
5: people spend their money, how people buy stuff, right? Right. I mean, it's not just money. Anything that's a choice is pretty much up for grabs and trying to figure out how the brain does it. Okay, so down there in Atlanta, along with your partner, you did this study about
3: teens and music. Take us through it with as little uh, scientific (laughs) lingo as possible so we understand what you're talking about.
5: Sure. This is really an example of an accidental discovery. I kind of have to take you back a few years to what we originally intended to do. The study started out, its main purpose was to figure out how teenagers are influenced by peer pressure. We naturally gravitated towards music because everyone has preferences for it. In fact, most people have pretty strong preferences for what they like and don't like. Now, where it gets interesting is that there are these ratings now that are everywhere. And so the original question was, when you see something that is rated, say, five stars by a thousand people, does that make you like it more? What we did was we had a group of teenagers that came into the lab And they went in an MRI scanner, and we presented short clips of over 100 songs. And then we showed them how popular it was. One of the criteria for this study was that we wanted to pick things that weren't immediately recognizable. That kind of triggers a different brain response. So at the time, we went to MySpace. Ah, yes, back in
3: the old days. (laughs) Back in the old (laughs) days,
5: a a mere five years ago. Um, so we gathered 120 songs, everything from rock to hip-hop to metal. You know, we presented these songs to the kids in the scanner. They rated how much they liked them. And then we showed them how popular it was and registered their brain responses to it. And we, we finished up that study, and we published the results, and it just went into a, a file. And this is where American Idol and your two
3: daughters come in. Probably the first time in history that a scientific discovery was prompted by American Idol.
5: <laughs> and the last. Uh, yes, yes, I admit that I watched American Idol. Back in 2009, Chris Allen, who went on to win that year, sang this song that was originally done by One Republic called Apologize. And I was sitting there with my daughters who loved the show, and, and he sang that song, and I said, Hey, we used that song in our teenage study three years ago. And I realized that we had a really unique opportunity here. We had used Apologize before One Republic actually got signed to a label. And so we had this, this set of brain responses essentially to kind of a virgin song. Mm-hmm. And that prompted us to go back and ask the question. Could we have predicted that song becoming a hit?
4: Significant correlation is the word that comes up in, the, in your findings, right, between this brain activity and uh, the ability to predict future hits.
5: Right. So we went back and we looked at the brain responses to all the songs, and so we were able to come up with an average brain activation to each song. And when I say brain activation, I'm talking about activation in a very specific circuit of the brain, uh, an area that's associated with anticipation of reward and pleasure. And then what we did was we went to a Nielsen sound scan and we asked the question, is there a link between the brain activation and then the number of units sold? And the answer is there was a modest correlation. There's a lot of scatter, a lot of noise. It's not a perfect prediction, but we can account for some portion of the variability of of sales in this random selection of songs by looking at the brain responses from this group of kids.
4: Was there any uh, attempt by the study to identify exactly what it was that they were responding to that that was giving them that positive neural reaction?
5: Yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. There's a couple of ideas that we had initially. One was, could we have just asked them, you know, how much do you like this song and was that any good at predicting sales? And the answer is no. The other thing that we asked them at the time was how familiar the song was things that you recognize as familiar you tend to like more but that didn't predict sales either and then so we started kind of we went down a long path with ultimately a dead end trying to analyze the songs themselves now there's kind of a a niche industry within the music business of trying to predict hits and there are a few companies out there that try to analyze the sonic and spectral characteristics of songs and try to say that there's a, a formula for a hit we tried that too None of those you know, correlated with the number of units sold. You know, the other thing that points to that is that in terms of brain activation, it was really cross-sectional in terms of the types of songs and genres that were represented there. For example, it wasn't all top 40 music. In fact, most of it wasn't. We had a lot of metal songs mm. that evoked strong brain activation. We had a fair amount of country you know, and a little bit of rock and you know, what we would call emo.
3: This is, this is fascinating because the music industry for a century has been trying to pinpoint exactly what makes a hit. However, I have a nightmare vision now, Greg, of, of like Jimmy Iovine or Clive Davis or some <laughs> force in the music industry capturing teenagers, feeding them in to an MRI and trying you know, to figure out in advance whether the Lady Gaga song is going to be a hit.
5: Yeah, you know, we've thought of that too. There's a couple things I think that will kind of mitigate that possibility. The first is cost. Doing MRI studies is, is not a cheap proposition. Just to give you guys an idea of how much it costs, typically we're talking about $100,000 just to do the simplest study you know, on a group of 20 or 30 people. How would you go about doing this? Well, well but you got guys in the music industry who spend that on a tanning bed. <laughs> Fair enough, you're right. But it's also a question of return on investment. So one of the things that we examined when we analyzed the data was not just whether the brain activation correlates with units sold. It, it does. But the real question, which I think you're asking is, Could you use this as a hit maker? That depends on your definition of a hit. When we looked at that, we we started with the industry definition of, say, a gold record, 500,000 units. Now, it turned out there were only two or three songs in in our data set that actually sold that many. That's not enough to get an exemplar or a template of the brain response for what a gold record looks like. It was around a sweet spot of, say, twenty to 30,000 units that the brain data was actually reasonably good at classifying whether a song would go on to sell more or less than that. But if if that's the threshold, that's probably not worth huge in- investment in money. wonder, Greg, if our lives could be easier as critics. <laughs> like, if
3: the MRI technology ever gets portable enough, mm. can we just, you know, while we're listening, we hook ourselves up and we don't even have to think about whether we like it or not. It just tells us. Carry a little machine uh,
4: brought to you by Emory University and uh, all our troubles are taken care of. Yeah, I like this. The machine says I do. Okay, we've been talking to Professor Gregory Burns, the director of Emory University's Center for Neuropolicy. Professor, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure.
3: That is a little bit of a new version of Led Zeppelin's classic, The Immigrant Song, recorded by Karen O and Trent Reznor for the soundtrack of that new movie, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The whole song isn't out yet, Greg. Makes me really eager to hear it. Been a couple of really cool, unlikely duets lately for soundtrack work. I talked a couple of weeks ago about Nick Cave and Nico Case getting together for the soundtrack of True Blood to record that Zombies song, She's Not There. But, you know, it's not just a new trend. Throughout the entire history of popular music, nothing has beaten a great duet. And throughout this show, we're going to go back and forth and play you some of our all-time favorites. No doubt about it,
4: Jim. We've been celebrating vocal duets for a long time on this show. I mean, think about Mark Lanigan and Isabel Campbell coming in here. What a great contrast between those voices. Or the Vaselines, you know, Eugene and Francis going back and forth, there's a real dynamic there that owns a special place in rock history. We're not going to play necessarily some of the more obvious ones but let it be known that we love the duets that uh, Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood did together or Serge Gainsbourg and and
3: Jane Birkin. We've talked about Some Velvet Morning by Nancy and Lee Hazelwood before. That's single-handedly the best duet of all time.
1: And maybe tell you about Phaedra and how she gave me light and how she made it in some velvet morning when I'm strange. Flowers grow.
4: gonna go beyond the obvious, Jim. We've got a special coin for the occasion. We've got uh, one of the great vocal duos of all time. Groundbreaking rock critics as well. Absolutely. Beavis on one side, Butthead on the other. I'll take Beavis. The coin is in the air, and it is Beavis. I get to go first. I am very excited. Well, no, but Before you get into it, what was your number one criteria for what a great duet is? Well, I think, first of all, you have to have two voices on a song to right, have a duet, right? There, yeah. Uh there, There's got to be some kind of an exchange there. A conversation, not right. unlike this one. Indeed. And we have Simon and Garfunkel as maybe the classic vocal duo of the 60s, right? I mean, everybody thinks of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel as the ones who defined that particular sound for the 60s generation. The track I'm going to play, though, sort of goes a little bit beyond that, a step beyond. When you think about vocal duets and you think about Simon and Garfunkel, they were modeling themselves after, say, those classic 50s singers like the uh, Everly Brothers, Phil and Don. They established that sound, two voices melding, creating a third tone in there. It's almost like a supernatural event that happens when those two voices blend Simon and Garfunkel had a similar chemistry earlier in their career, but on their last two albums, they really started to develop as studio craftsmen, really using the studio as an instrument and creating this whole other aura around the vocal duet. And I think the song that really nails it for me is The Only Living Boy in New York. It's from their last album, their fifth studio album that they did together, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Now, this song was written by Simon to Garfunkel, Garfunkel was already starting to drift away. He was uh, starting to develop a Hollywood movie career. As Simon was writing the songs for this album in New York, Garfunkel was off in Mexico doing a starring role in Catch-22. So Simon was feeling a little bit let down, a little bit lonely, a little bit like, you know, hey, you're out there having fun making movies and I'm here writing our next record. What's going on? And he puts a little bit in that song. He felt, you know, I'm the loneliest boy in New York. A little self-pity there, right? but they turned it into this magical moment in the studio. Normally you think of them singing side by side. Here it's fascinating what they do. They sang together in an echo chamber and then layered those voices eight or nine times to create this haunting quality. So when you hear Garfunkel singing Here I Am, it sounds like he's in another country. And metaphorically, and literally at the time, he was. (laughs) He was in Mexico. Mm. Simon's singing about this whole notion of these two friends And collaborators breaking apart. It's almost like a postmodern duet. He's here, but he's not. A beautiful, haunting song, one of the last things Simon and Garfunkel ever recorded together. The only living boy in New York on Sound Opinions.
1: School so dun, 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 dun dun Here I am the only little boy you oh, I get the news I need longer.
4: That's Simon and Garfunkel with The Only Living Boy in New York on Sound Opinions, one of my favorite duets. After the break, it's Jim's turn to play a classic duet. That's In A Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: I got you babe
3: I got you babe Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Dear My partner is Greg Cott. We are partners, but we don't duet. We are, however, talking this week about the great duets in pop music history. And I think Mr. Cott, number one on the list, you have gotta to go to Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. They began collaborating almost by accident. There was a version that Gay had recorded of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and there was a version that Terrell had recorded of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And the powers that be at Motown didn't really think either one was good enough. What happens if we take a little bit from from the chocolate side and a little bit from the peanut butter and we put them together? What do we get, right? That is what happened, and they would go on to record a string of fantastic hits. Your precious love ain't nothing like the real thing. You're all I need to get by if this world were mine. The tune I'm going to play is a little less less known it's the onion song what a strange tune the world is just a great big onion and pain and fear are the spices that make you cry there's also a strange story behind this some people say that it is not Tammy Terrell singing with Marvin Gaye it's the co-songwriter Valerie Simpson tammy terrell would die of a brain tumor. She and Gay were not together that often on the studio or on stage. She actually collapsed into Gay's arms on stage and died not long after. But there's a version of events that hold that that Simpson, one of the songwriters, sang, and it's her, not Tammy Terrell. Other people say, no, Simpson did a guide vocal, but even though she was in a wheelchair and sick and suffering, it is Tammy Terrell. I'll leave that to the historians to debate, okay? What I'm always interested in in a duet is when you have a male singer and a female singer, and they're each telling their story. You get a different version of events. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and then the third thing comes together, and it's better than everything. The Onion Song from 1969, I think, is when Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell did it best. Here it is on Sound Opinions.
1: The world is
0: just a great
3: Opinion song by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell on Sound Opinions. Greg, you got another great duet for us? Jim, I'm glad you brought up Marvin and Tammy because
4: their song, You're All I Need to Get By, actually their version of Nicholas Ashford and Mallory Simpson's song, You're All I Need to Get By, inspired my next pick. It actually has a kind of a checkered history. It began as a track called All I Need on Method Man's solo debut from 1994. Method Man, the first to release a solo record from that Wu-Tang Clan hip-hop posse, the revolutionized hip-hop in the early 90s. So All I Need comes out as an album track in 94. In 95, it's remixed as a track called I'll Be There For You, You're All I Need To Get By, and it interpolates that classic Motown standard, You're All I Need to Get By. They added Mary J. Blige to the track as the vocalist, and that's what really makes it the partnership of Method Man's gruff street tales and Mary J. Blige's commentary on it. Now, the original song was a devotional song. This couple, you know, you're, you're all I need to get by. It was like devotion from man to woman, woman to man. In this particular track, there's a similar kind of sentiment, but it's a little bit more hard-edged. Blige is drifting in and out of the song almost like a ghost, almost like she's numb. She's talking about Method Man, this character, this narrator, and she almost feels like, you know, I'm about to be a widow. You're in this hard life. You're doing everything you can to support the family, but I fear you could be losing your own life because of it. So there's almost a mournful quality to it. Now, there's been several remixes of the song. The RZA version was the huge hit, but there was also a remix by Puff Daddy, of all people, that I really liked, and that's the one I'm going to play. And the reason I like it is that he takes a small sample of a couple of lines from a Notorious B.I.G. song in which the Notorious B.I.G. says, Lie together, cry together, I swear to God, I hope we die together. And that adds an added layer of hauntedness to this particular song. He's kind of echoing what Mary J. Blige is saying. So it's this duet with commentary on the side. Really complex, really beautifully done. Method Man and Mary J. Blige from 1995. I'll be there for you. You're all I need to get by on Sound Opinions.
2: you you man for you anytime you need me. For real, girl, it's me in your world, believe me make a man feel better than a woman queen with a crown that be down for whatever there were few things that's forever my lady we can make war or make babies back when i was nothing you made a brother feel like he was something that's why i'm with you to this day no frontin'. even when the skies were gray you would rub me on my back and say maybe it'll be okay now that's real to a brother like me baby never ever get my away and keep it tight my eye right? and i'm gonna walk these doors so we can live in a f***ing crib with thousands of kids well, life, you don't need a ring to be my wife Just be there for me and I'ma make sure we Be living in the effing lap of luxury I'm realizing that you didn't have to f- with me But you did, now I'm going all out kid And I got mad love to give You my n- you my misses with hugs and kisses Valentine calls cold-
3: Method Man and Mary J. Blige from 1995. I'll be there for you. You're all I need to get by. A sentence that Greg Cott says to me very often. (laughs) I'm going to play Led Zeppelin's The Battle of Evermore. I can't believe, I don't think we've ever played this on Sound Opinions yet, and we have to. It's one of the great Zeppelin tracks. And in the entire Zeppelin catalog, it's the only time when Robert Plant shares vocal duties with someone else. Sandy Denny. Robert Plant is playing the narrator in this creepy tale of supernatural folklore and mythology, and it's a tale of the darkest depths of Mordor. All respect to Peter Jackson, I think the single best piece of art ever inspired by Tolkien. Sandy Denny comes in as the town crier, and she adds an element that really elevates this song above and beyond what it already was. There were a lot of cool songs with, you know, Jimmy Page playing mandolin and Zeppelin in that Zeppelin 3 kind of folky acoustic mode. This is from Zeppelin 4, and every song on, on that album brought Zeppelin to a new level. This is the song that precedes Stairway to Heaven, of course. I love it to pieces, and and everybody loved Sandy Denny's voice, including the people in Zeppelin, who had the hugest egos, but they bowed down to what she had done with Fairport Convention. Tragically, a few years after this release, the album came out in 71. In uh, 77, Denny fell more and more into substance abuse, and she fell down the stairs in 78, hit her head very hard, lapsed into coma, and died a short time later. She was one of the great voices out of the UK in the sixties and seventies and she is always worth remembering. Here is Led Zeppelin with Battle of Evermore on Sound Opinions. The
1: Queen of took her bow to gold and then
4: Led Zeppelin's Battle of Evermore. That's Robert Plant duetting with Sandy Denny. Great choice, Jim, for one of the best duets of all time in rock and roll. And I bet a lot of
3: Zeppelin fans don't even know who Sandy Denny was.
4: And it's a shame because, as you said, a huge influence on them. They they were listening to those Fairport Convention records and going, you know, on our acoustic stuff, we want to sound like this. My next choice, Jim, is from the 50s. It's a, a song by a duo named Mickey and Sylvia. Love is strange. I love this song, despite it's association with Dirty Dancing. Many people (laughs) who are listening to this show may associate that song. They may have good associations. They may have bad associations. But I will say that Mickey and Sylvia are better actors than Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. No diss on Swayze and Grey. But This song is just a great example of both erotic playfulness and comedy. It has sort of a checkered history, this song, because Bo Diddley apparently wrote it and gave it to the couple because he was having a tiff at the time with Chess Records. Now, they added some stuff to it, clearly. There was an elaborate guitar part that Mickey played on this song, Mickey Baker. He was an accomplished R&B bandleader at the time. And his guitar part was borrowed in part from a blues guitar player named Jody Williams. And then he took a little bit of that Bo Diddley Afro-Cuban beat and turned it into this beautifully layered guitar opus. On top of that, you had Sylvia, one Sylvia Robinson. Does that name ring a bell? The uh, future hip-hop mogul for Sugar Hill Records. That Sylvia Robinson was the duet partner on this record. There's some subtext to this song as well Baker, the older man, was apparently much enamored with the younger Sylvia And was constantly trying to court her She was refusing So the back and forth in this song is somewhat real There's a conversation that actually breaks out in the middle of the song that's quite humorous And when you talk about the duet as being a conversation That's the absolute height of it So brilliant musically, extremely funny, a beautiful piece of 50s pop. Love is Strange from Mickey and Sylvia on Sound Opinions.
1: Answer. I simply say
3: What a Duet, Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia. Nice choice, Greg. To nominate your favorite duet track, call 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or join in the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be back after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cutt. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and we're running down some of our favorite vocal duets of all time in rock and roll, and now it
3: is Jim's turn. Greg, I know you're going to agree with this one as well. Not only is it one of the great duets of all time, you could say it's one of the great Christmas songs, albeit a very dark one. Fairy Tale of New York by Irish rockers The Pogues, released in 1987 and featuring the female vocals of the British pop singer Kirsty McCall. This happened by accident. Shane McGowan, leader of the Pogues, was writing this Irish-style folk ballad about a drunk who is thrown into jail in New York. He's an Irish immigrant, and he's either hallucinating or having this inner fight with himself, with his love, who's not there. They're both fairly miserable, lonely, drug-addicted, alcoholic, and it's Christmas. All right, what an uplifting song. It was supposed to be the female vocal part sung by the bassist for the Pogues, but she quit. A lot of people in and out of the Pogues through the years And they were about to record What's going to happen Steve Lillywhite was producing He, at that time, was married to Kirsty McCall Now, Kirsty McCall recorded five albums She really became a little bit more popular Or much better known in the States She was always kind of popular in the UK After this song came out I think her greatest album was Electric Landlady in 1991 She just happened to be in the studio She did the vocal part The Pogues liked it so much They kept it Tragically, she died in two thousand in a strange boating accident in Mexico. There's a melancholy to this whole song. Of course, you know, Shane McGowan is all about the melancholy, mm-hmm. a sad life, a great talent. It all comes out in this song. Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues and Kirsty McCall on Sound Opinions.
1: There was Christmas Eve, babe and the drunk tank. And an old man said to me Won't see another one And then I sang a song The rare old mountain here I turned my face away And dreamed about you God I it into one, I've got a feeling. It's years from me and you. So happy Christmas, I love you, baby. I can see a better time when I. Queen of New York City When, when the band, band finished playing, playing They held up for more Sinatra
0: was swinging All the drums we
1: were singing We kissed on the corner Then danced through the night The boys of the Envoy Pitty Coil Were singing Going back And the bells were ringing out For Christmas Day
3: That was Kirsty McCall with The Pogues Fairy Tale of New York Kirsty McCall also uh, sang some on the Smiths records, Greg. She's a fine, fine vocalist. You've got a little bit of theme going
4: here. There's sort of a little bit of a mini death trip going on with some of these vocalists and yeah, this,
3: this was not intentional. Every one of my female <laughs> duet partners so far has died. <laughs> Sad, but
4: leaving behind some great music, no doubt. My last choice for great duets, uh, Jim, is a track by the Minneapolis group the Jayhawks. They just recently reunited. But the track I'm going to play is from their 1995 album Tomorrow the Green Grass, and it is an iconic one. For Jayhawks fans, the key to this band has always been the interplay between the voices of Gary Loris and Mark Olson. Loris inevitably taking those high harmonies, Olson down below, the two voices just blending beautifully. You know, this group started playing what later became known as alternative country in the mid-80s. They were using groups like the Leuven Brothers and the Stanley Brothers and the Everly Brothers and the early Birds with Graham Parsons as benchmarks for how they should sound. Highly unfashionable at the time, but they came up with a sound all their own, and it was really framed around those two voices interacting. The the key to those country harmonies that they were referencing was that high, lonesome sound. They loved that plaintive melancholy, and yet sort of a soaring spiritual quality at the same time. And this song's a sterling example of it. Blue, what a hit it should have been. The voices blending perfectly, and then I love the bridge where there's these counterpoint vocal melodies that Loris and Olsen are singing over and under each other. Beautiful song, still gets me to this day, still can't figure out why it wasn't a hit. Blue by the Jayhawks on Sound Opinions.
1: Where have all my friends gone? They've all disappeared. Turn around maybe one.
4: is Blue from the Jayhawks on Sound Opinions one of my favorite duets of all time Jim what's your last song
3: well Greg throughout I've been saying that I really think a great duet is a conversation back and forth not just two vocals coming together and Candy by Iggy Pop is one of those conversations iggy said of writing this song i was looking back on my relationship with my first girlfriend betsy and i thought let's be fair let's let her have her say Mm -hmm. so he's reconsidering his first relationship then he brings the girl in who's going to play the girl he turns to someone who i will argue is one of the best all-time go-to i need a duet partner people in the history of (laughs) rock and roll kate pearson of the B-52s. Kate Pearson has sung with R.E.M. She has sung with the Ramones. She sung with Matthew Sweet. She sung with David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. I mean, you talk about diversity. There's something about her voice. Iggy said it best. There is a naive little twang that sounds rural but gorgeous. She comes in and balances Iggy's reminiscences of this first relationship with Hers. But both of them find that there's something sweet about this that they are going back to. It's one of Iggy's biggest hits and only major pop hits from 1990. You know, long and storied career and the inventor of punk rock, uh, but this was a big hit for him. Here it is, Candy on Sound Opinions.
1: Do I... Hurt me real bad when you left. And I'm glad you got out, but, but I miss you.
3: That is Iggy Pop and Kate Pearson with Candy wrapping up this episode's discussion of some of the great duets of all time. If you want to go back over our lists, visit us on the web at soundopinions.org. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by our favorite duet team, Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana, with the assistance of Annie Minhoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss, and our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori southside Malatia. He's kind of the Jerry Lewis, I think, to our Dean Martin. <laughs>
4: sound opinions everyone's a critic so give us a call on our hotline 888-859-1800
1: new messages yeah this is ian chambers and i wanted to make a comment about a breakout artist i just heard called tune Arts. she is beyond what most people are able to do with their minds and i'm very happy to have heard a few of her songs on your station it really made my night thank you so much
0: calling from Minneapolis. Thank you for your shout out to Commons. I used to love her. Bone, wishing that I could some classic hip hop getting recognition on public radio.
1: And it totally made my drive home from work tonight. So thank you don't stop, but hey. sense, y'all. if you don't stop
0: hey. uh, Yes, yes, y'all, if you don't stop You act, yo, we gotta be the sure shot sure That's periodically I would see Old girl at the club, sit at the house party She didn't have a body, but she started getting thick quick Did a couple of videos and became Afrocentric. Out goes the weave, in goes the braised bees medallion She was on that tip about stopping the violence About my people she was teaching me By not preaching to me, but speaking to me and a that was leisurely So easily I approach she my rap That's how we got Hi, this is Aaron from Oklahoma City.
1: I just had an, an idea. I was, I was thinking about something I read that Lester Banks had written where he'd uh, done two separate reviews of the Miles Davis album On the Corner where, where, first of all, when he first heard it, he didn't get it. He thought Miles had gone nuts.
5: And the second time he reviewed it, he
1: was in love with it. And I just wondered if you guys had ever run into any albums that made you feel that way, that when you first heard it, you thought the person was nuts, and then you fell in love with it later. Thanks a lot.
4: Uh, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I was just catching up with some podcasts on my way home from a road trip to Canada. And I really appreciated the little tribute you did for Carl Gardner in the June 20th episode. I had no idea Greg was so into the old R&B and soul music, uh, which I've just been in a love affair with myself for the last couple of years. And I wanted to call and encourage Jim and Greg to do some shows on that era in music uh, to help folks like me uh, unlock a little bit more uh, of the. Buried treasures in that particular uh, period of time. Thanks, love the show.
5: I took one look and
1: I was fractured. Oh, oh. I tried to walk, but I was
0: lame. Oh, oh. I tried to talk, but I just stuttered. Oh, why, what's your name? Here, <laughs> what's your
3: name? What's your name? Young. Girl. Young
1: girl.